Hello ladies and gentlemen, my name is Karin Kavins and I wish you a warm welcome at 48 Minutes Unplugged. In this podcast we interview leaders who we think are inspiring. We rapid fire questions at them to discover what makes them stand out. Because we believe the world today more than ever needs inspiring leaders. Leaders who are good at what they do but stand out in the way they do it. Who are able to keep focus in a rapidly changing world and have an impact that reaches further. To truly unplug from busy and tune in into here and now, we invite our guests to do a breathing exercise with us. We intentionally do not disclose the questions in advance because we would like to get intuitive and heartfelt answers. We want you to really get to know the person behind the title. The questions have no logical order and that at times might feel a bit uneasy. After 48 minutes exactly, you will hear a tone, which means the interview will come to an end, no matter how exciting the content is at that moment. All our episodes can be accessed via Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And do check out our website www.48hoursunplugged.com to stay up to date of our upcoming leadership retreats and other activities. Today we are already in the 10th episode of our podcast and that deserves a special setup. Both Jennifer and myself will be interviewing a very special person. We have the honor to have John Porter, CEO of Telenet, as our guest. John has an incredible track record in the media and telco industry, spanning more than three decades. He started his career in the US, assuming management and general manager roles at Group W Broadcasting and Cable, Westinghouse Cable Systems and Time Warner Communications. In 1994, he was recruited to start Oster, a subscription television business in Australia. This turned out to become one of his most remarkable accomplishments as he led the company from a startup to a $2.5 billion public company. When Oster got acquired by Foxtel in 2012, John took a gap year before joining Telenet in 2013. John also served as the chairman of the board of Enero, a diversified marketing services company. We don't know John personally yet, but he was tipped to be a very inspiring leader, which made us curious to talk to him. His team appreciates him for his authenticity, his ability to give trust while challenging at the same time, and last but not least, for the fun factor he brings into business. I hope he can bring this fun factor into this interview. Let's see. But welcome, John. Happy to have you here. Thank you. Really looking forward to it. So um, you're a bit more than seven years uh, in your current role. Um, one of the things I read is that uh, part of the reason you joined was for the special culture you heard this company Tillinet has. Uh, what would you... Uh, describe as, as what are the elements in the Telenet DNA that fit with your own personality? Like, where is the match? Yeah, well, I think, um, you know, when I was in my gap year and uh, started to contemplate going back and working in a large company, uh, I looked at uh, some of the companies that I could possibly work at um, on YouTube videos and online and got a sense of their, their communication style, their advertising, etc. And uh, something about telling it really stood out. And when I um, researched it, 
I got to know the, the origins of Telenet, which Telenet is a company that, that grew out of the intercommunals in Flanders, you know, in around the mid 90s uh, as a challenger to Proximus. Um, and was fortunate to grow through what was a very strong growth period for the industry. Yeah. Um, having a, a network which was ahead of its competitors in the delivery of broadband. So Telenet had a tremendous period of growth from the, from the late 90s. Um, and in fact, ended up um, with a lot of scale and incumbent-like market shares uh, in Flanders. That's very unusual mm -hmm. for a challenger. So um, what really drove that growth um, is really very embedded in the history, which is um, there's, a, there's a, a passion and a commitment uh, and a sense um, that Kellenet is bigger than just a company because it did grow out of, out of um, the communities and the villages and where, where everybody yeah. grew up. And uh, a lot of people feel a connection uh, with Telenet, you know, beyond as just an employer, that it's doing something important. Mm -hmm. And there's also, um, beyond that sense of community with the market that it serves, uh, it's a young company, uh, it's a company that um, does like to have fun and punches above its weight. And I could see that in, in the communications style and materials and, and what I saw at the company. But I like to think that we've we've sort of built on that over the last seven years. Nice. And um, Telenet is um, with Base as, as one of the brands is, is a provider of mobile phone services. What is your relationship to your mobile phone? Uh, I would say not my relationship with my mobile phone is certainly not as intensive as uh, some other people. Okay. Um, I do keep it with me at all times in the back pocket. Um, but I studiously avoid pulling the mobile phone out and browsing during periods of nothingness. There's nothing that irritates me more that people feel the need if there's no, they're not immediately engaged with anyone or anything, that they just pull the phone out and just start going wherever. And um, so that's not a, a thing that, that I uh, admire much. I mean, I have to say, you know, my kids do it, particularly my daughter. So yeah. uh, you know, I can't be too critical. But but I like to uh, enjoy uh, moments of uh, reflection mm -hmm. and quietness. And whether, you know, if I'm inside, if I'm outside, I like to engage with the natural environment. Uh, so I think the phone can be um, a crutch. And mm -hmm. I try to use it as a tool, but not as a crutch. Nice. And how do you recharge them? Well, I, uh, I get a lot of uh, pleasure from being in the natural environment. So whether it's hiking or cycling or... Um, and also, I got, obviously get a lot of pleasure from my family. So moving uh, around the world as I have... Uh, in my career and in my life, um, I, I'm very close with my family, and um, we we tend to stay connected no matter where we are. And um, beyond that, I would say that you know I have some passions, um, one of which is 
cooking. So uh, I have a uh, the, finally the kitchen that I always wanted uh, here at Loft, and uh, I have my beautiful La Cornu stove, mm -hmm. which, uh, as I like to tell people who, when they're sick of hearing it, was uh, more expensive than my first house, uh, <laughs> but is delivering on all fronts. I can tell you, mm -hmm. it's kind of fabulous. So that's another another uh, relaxing hobby of mine. Usually on on the weekends, I uh, take over the kitchen and. What's your do uh, preferred fun. dish to cook? Well, I um, I like slow cooking, mm -hmm. um, so um, I make a uh, pork sugo. Uh, with a puccini mushroom risotto, mm -hmm. which gets very high marks. Yeah. <laughs> also do a nice uh, lamb shoulder, uh, which um, I've served around this table for nice. lots of people before. Seven hour lamb shoulder. Whoa. Secret is lots of garlic, lots of lemon. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it melts and lots away. Lots of rosemary. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, no, that's, those are the things I like to do for fun and recharge. Nice. You give a very relaxed impression, um, despite your, your role and responsibility. So, um, what's your secret? Experience. <laughs> I think. I think. First of all, I you know I think there are there's there's a nature versus nurture thing with, mm -hmm. with people who are calm in, in stressful situations, and I think I was gifted with. Um, uh, you know, the right hormones to uh, mm -hmm. stay steady. <laughs> so my, my fight, flight, and or yeah. freeze hormones are, are, are quite low. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I do um, sort of, I have an interest in, in sort of Eastern religion-oriented thinkers, mm -hmm. and um, one that comes to mind on this subject is Eckhart Tolle. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's... it's um, React versus respond, and and for me, um, I always like to keep uh, a breath, or a moment, or arm's length between my reaction to certain situations or events and how I respond. And I think that's just something I, I developed over time. But generally speaking, I do have uh, a calm nature, and whether that was in the genetics or the way I was brought up early. I used to, I lived in a lot of different places, moved around a lot as a child. And um, and I was, as a child, you could say somewhat introverted, although mm. nobody would say I'm introverted mm -hmm. now. But, uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, you know, always taking time to understand mm. the context, the situation mm -hmm. that I'm in, the why. Uh, you know, why mm. would a person do something, you know, mm. you know that obviously was push my buttons. Mm -hmm. uh, and to me, it's a strength. If somebody's doing something that pushes your buttons and you don't allow your buttons to be pushed, mm -hmm. you know, that's, that's a power yep. that, that you can use when you need it. And after about three decades in, uh, in business, um, how do you think you have evolved as a leader? Well, I'm evolving all the time and still evolving. You know, I think that's, that's why I've been able to grow in the mm -hmm. industry is, is to, with, a, with a growth mindset. Mm -hmm. every, every person I've worked with and every job I've had, I learned something. I, uh, 
the, the bosses I had in the 1980s and early 1990s, um, which was not a good period for old white men, um, I learned that I didn't want to be like those guys. I wanted to do, I wanted to be a different kind of leader yeah. uh, mm -hmm. in business. And I think, so I learned a lot from them, even though I didn't really respect them. And then I had people I worked with and bosses who, who I really did respect. And um, I learned a lot from them too. Um, and also I think working in, in international contexts um, also has taught me to uh, adapt uh, and be versatile, adapt to different cultures, um, and to, to quickly try to assimilate uh, a knowledge and understanding of the people that I'm working with to inform my own leadership style. Um, I often make the, the uh, allegory sort of of, of Australia where um, Australian business style is very rooted in the history of the country, as is, by the way, Flemish business style, <laughs> what I can see. Um, but in Australia, it, it's, um, it was founded by prisoners and jailers. So um, you're either on one side of the coin or the other, and they, they celebrate um, rogues in Australia. That's part of the culture, <laughs> okay. sort of part of the value, mm -hmm. whereas in other places, they don't celebrate rogues, you know, mm -hmm. so in America. Mm -hmm. So very quickly, you need to understand the context in, that you're in. So, so that's, that's a skill that I've finally honed over the years, and I think that, that serves me very well uh, in the current Context. I'm also would say I've learned about what people look for in a leader. What what do they, what do they want? You know, and that's once again that you know talking about leading in Flanders. What 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 I did in in, in the way I manage my business in Australia is not the way I manage my business in, in, in Flanders because there's there's a different expectation um, and you know. We're trying to move beyond, I think, what a more classical expectation of a CEO or leadership is in Flanders, and I think I'm not the only one trying to do that. I see that happening around the traps, but this was a, well, seven years ago, even more so, very um, sort of wedded to the classical organizational hierarchy, and the CEO was the, you know, the general, and there are very few generals. There are a lot of good sergeants and lieutenants and colonels, but not a lot of generals. And everybody was waiting to see, hey, you know, what's he going to think? What's he going to do? What's he going to, you know? And I, I remember the, the Inga Smith's uh, story where uh, she was the CMO when I arrived. And, and uh, she came into my office after, after 10 weeks and said, what's the problem, John? You don't like me? Is there something I'm doing wrong? Oh. I'm like, what do you mean? She, I said, I said, I think you're fantastic. You're doing a great job. And she goes, oh, she goes, but you, you know, you don't call me. You don't tell me what to do. You know, my old boss used to call me when he was walking his dog on Sunday morning and give me the plan for the next week. And I said, no, no, you're not going to get that from me. So um, I try to to practice um, what's known as servant leadership. You know, in a, in a lot of different ways and. It's really about enabling my team and my organization to be uh, 
greater than the sum of parts. And that's the way I think about it. So um, getting back, getting out of directed leadership. But then the other thing is, is, is people in Flanders are looking for a direction. That is their, that's their history. Yeah. And uh, so I have to find a balance between, you know, really articulating the, what we do and, um, and letting people do it. So what would um, one piece of advice be um, to young leaders? To young leaders? Mm -hmm. um, so the principle of success to me is um, something that I boiled down to character, heart and brains in equal proportion. Um, I think sometimes young people um, feel they need to prove themselves, you know, that they've adapted, adopted the skill quicker than, than, than necessary. Um, but I think what, where I see most effective leadership growth is when people trust themselves um, to grow and have the intellect to do it, um, have the heart you know, the, the ability to be empathic, to pick up on things around them, to, to read the people and understand and be able to connect with people. Um, and the guts to, to, or the character to, to take risks and to um, fail and to be authentic. Um, I mean, it's a complex, Thing, really, I can I could talk about expand on it quite a bit, but you just think about this the idea of character, heart, and brains in equal proportion. I have people in, in my senior management organization that are the smartest people I ever worked with, um, but they're not necessarily natural empaths. So when I talk to people to talk to them, I say, look, you know, try to extend yourself personally. Um, try to develop your own brand of servant leadership. I mean, you're not necessarily going to be like me who walks into a room and try, talks and engages with people quite naturally and, and, and easily, but you can develop your own brand of it uh, and practice it. And that's the way I mm. sort of simplify yep. the answer to that question. Mm. I love that philosophy. Mm. Um, and... Uh, What about vulnerability? I guess that's linked to the, the heart part. There's a lot of um, talk right now about vulnerability uh, in business. Do you practice it? And, and is it something you've, you find easy, especially as a, as a male uh, leader? Yeah, I think, um, I think about it as more um, humility, I guess, um, and authenticity. Mm -hmm. um, and... Yeah, I mean, I believe in it. I think it's the word vulnerability has been a bit over overwrought, but um, I think because we're in a period of time where you know leaders can't really get away with being, oh, you know, I'm John at home and I'm fun and I'm cooking up pancakes and you know and riding my bike and all that, and then I go to work and and you know I'm serious and not every meeting I have is an appointment and I'm the busiest man in show business and you, you know, you have to make connection, you have to 
talk to my secretary two weeks before you want to talk to me. I mean, you cannot have two different versions of yourself, mm-hmm. or three or four. Some mm-hmm. people have many. Yeah. <laughs> so I think um, the the authenticity of being the same person, 360 degrees, no matter where where you are, um, you have to you have to come to that with a level of humility. Otherwise, mm-hmm. you know, it doesn't make sense. Um, so I think we. I like to think of it as, you know, look, we all have a role to play in, in business. Mine happens to be CEO, which is, you know, uh, has a certain definition. But does it mean that my job's, you know, more important than yours in terms of the things that um, that you get up and spring out of bed every day thinking about just as important as the things that I do? Um, and if you come to it with that mindset, um, then... Think things just take care of themselves. Mm-hmm. That's something I learned from my mother when I was 12 or 13 years old. When I came home from junior high school, and and I said, "Yeah, you know, the, there's this guy, the janitor. You know, he <laughs> cleans everything up, and if somebody throws up, he has to go clean mm-hmm. it up." And so I would never want that job. Mm-hmm. And she, and she said, "She said that janitor does his job with integrity." Uh, he cares about it. He's, you know, he feeds his family. He goes, I don't want you ever to say anything better about a janitor. <laughs> and uh, I was like, hmm, okay, got that. So, yeah, I think it's important to, to respect mm-hmm. work, no matter where it comes from, and not to think you, you know, what you do, you do is something super special that mm-hmm. nobody else can do. I truly believe everyone has a purpose. In life, whether it's related to work or something else, what is your personal purpose? Do you have one? Yeah, well, um, I do think my purpose is, is leadership. I mean, uh, my my mother would say that. Yeah, when when I dropped out of the womb, I was uh, already. Um, she used to say when I was a kid, we had this expression. Um, me first, me most, me best, quick, quick. That was, that was what <laughs> so I was on, Even at you know, a single digit age, I was directing people in the family. And she, said, she would say, I, I was, there was never a team I was on that I didn't want to be the captain. And um, so I don't think, I, I don't have the belief that I have some sort of special insights or special knowledge. Um, but what I do have is, is a, a desire and ability to, to, to organize and inspire people. And that's, that's whether, whatever context that takes. And right now it's, it's a business with 3,500 employees and you know, two and a half million customers, or five million customers. Um, it's, you know, that's really what I feel like I was put on this earth to do. And the same extends to family. I mean, I think, you know, I, I love my family and my four kids and my extended family and, you know, my mother and everyone else. And, and I think being able to help uh, enable and um, their success is also very important to me. So it's not just about leadership, you know, my version of leadership in business. It's about extending that to life generally. And maybe I'll find other ways to use it, too, when I stop running big businesses. Mm. Mm. 
You talked about uh, inspiring people. Is there someone that inspires you? Who inspires you? Yeah, I, I, I uh, been asked that question before, and I, I always struggle. <laughs> I always struggle to find you know the single person that you know embodies everything that's yeah. great and wonderful. And I feel like for me, it's much more gestalt. You know, I like to take a piece from here, a piece from there, and you know, uh, I like that person's style, and I like it. You know, you know, I, I like um, um, trying to think about. Um, I mean, I like Axel Van Vogt inspires me. Um, Kanye why, West. That's why I think <laughs> Kanye. Kanye does inspire me in, in a way. Um, you know. I have a son who's a musician. He inspires me. He does things that I just can't imagine how the heck he did coming from the parents that he has. Um, uh, the CEO of Microsoft, Satya Nadal, he, mm. he basically turned that company around 180 degrees um, with humility and yeah. um, purpose and everything else and just changed that company so dramatically. Uh, he inspires me as a business leader. Um, there are others. Um, there are many I, I also don't uh, respect, and I feel like I learn from them mm -hmm. as much as I learn from the people that, I, that I'm inspired by. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, we already said it, um, your, your career is pretty extensive. Looking back, what, what would you describe as most difficult time period moment? Well, the most difficult period was when my ego got in the way of uh, success. So it's a story of the startup of All Star, which is, you know, went down to Australia in 94 with a piece of paper, basically. Uh, I left, I was president of a big division of Time Warner at the age of 36. And the headhunter called me up and said, you know, hey, these guys are trying to start a little eight-channel wireless TV business down in uh, Australia. Uh, would you be interested? I said, come on, man. You know, I'm, I'm running this massive division of Time Warner. We're about to launch competitive phone service and this, and we own channels. And he's like, no, listen to me. He said, there's, there's equity involved. And... Um, It's Australia. <laughs> so uh, anyway, I came around to the fact that uh, that it was I was if I was ever going to do anything like that, that it had to be then. And I went down there, and things went pretty well. So you know, we, we built the company. We I remember we had 16,000 customers, and we were losing a million to two million a month. Okay. And. Um, We went around the world to raise money. So this was in the junk bond days. So we raised um, $200 million at 14.5% interest, oh. um, which, mean, which meant in five years, we, when we had to pay it all back, uh, we would have had to pay back $500 million. Whoa. So we um, started building the business from there. And then we went into the dot-com boom and You know, Blind Freddy could have raised money during that period. So we we decided to expand our story more into 
the internet and the things that had just come along in the late 90s um, and to take the company public. Yeah. But it was a story. It was a narrative. Still, yeah. the business wasn't very big. We weren't generating a lot of profit. In fact, we were probably generating no profit, now that yeah. I think about it. And, and we took the company public, and you know, within, within a year, we had um, close to $2 billion uh, valuation. Um, and you know, because I owned a bit of the company, and my uh, Porter family valuation was looking pretty sweet too. So yeah. I was starting to really believe my own bullshit at that point um, that I could really pull this thing off. And then the dot com, well, the uh, bust hit. Um, so that was 2001. So from two billion, we went to a company with 200 million of equity value and uh, about 450 million of debt, Ooh. which meant basically that our company was worth nothing. And it got, I remember the day when my general counsel came in sort of strategy, woman, close partner, came in and, and she said, John, she said, um, our outside counsel has determined that we are technically insolvent. And I said, well, Dan, fire them and go find us some outside counsel that doesn't think we're technically insolvent. <laughs> and that was a big inflection point in, uh, because when you're staring over the precipice of failure, I mean yeah. real failure, like losing a lot of people's money and, you know, I had a team of people who all thought they were millionaires six months before and now all their equity was worth nothing. Same with my own. Um, you know, it's a, it's a big wake-up call. And also had to do things like five, 400 people all at once and, you know, really do a, a big, big, fast turnaround. Um, and that's when I realized that, um, you know, it was a bit of Icarus, you know, yeah. flying too close to the sun that I really, really lost. Uh, I was, I lost my way. I didn't, I believed that why not, why not us? Why, would, why shouldn't we go and make 200, you know, 2 billion yeah. in six months? You know, if everybody else is doing it, why shouldn't we do it? And that's where I, I feel like I uh, lost perspective and um, had to quickly regain. So that was probably the biggest, toughest period. I, my wife would say, you know, I used to wake up every morning at, at about 2.30 or 3 o'clock and now go back to sleep. And then, you know, I'd be up. I, I was sleeping like three, four hours a night times. <laughs> and I'm the person who loves to sleep, so I like seven at eight, or at least, you know. So that was a, a very challenging time. Well, how and did you get out of it? Yeah, we got out of it. How, how did oh, you? How, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I see that. <laughs> to, yeah, I survived. Um, one step at a time. Um, I had... I brought everybody in the company together and, and at one point, well, well, just to back up a bit, at one point I was also reading in the paper sort of every day about something that was not going right at All Star. So the business section loves watching, you know, a train wreck in slow motion. So, yeah. um, you know, we're reading that somebody was leaking, you know, something all the time uh, out of our out of our office, and I had a pretty good idea who it was, but um, I just brought everybody together, and I said, listen, guys, um, this ship 
he's pulling out a port. And you're either up on the deck helping us put up the sails or you're down in the hull drilling holes. And if you're in the hull drilling holes, I'm going to find you and I'm going to flush you out. I can guarantee you that. And everyone's like, hmm, okay, this guy's serious. <laughs> but the fact is we also had a plan, which was... That's to, the Australian way then. Yeah. <laughs> That's a straight way. You don't. You can't be ambiguous about mm. things, you know. And also, the Australians—they don't mind a punch in the nose. You know, it's 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 um, you know, an Australian will—you could get in a fight in a parking lot outside of a pub in Australia. And the next thing you know, that guy's your best friend. I mean, it's that's the way it is. Um, Roughing it. If you show strength, mm. uh, it's important. Not a lot of finesse <laughs> down there. Um, but that was sort of the first day of the rest of our lives. And, you know, after that, we, I went out and uh, had a recapitalization plan. It was a good business with a broken balance sheet. The business was growing. We were doing good things. We had good brand. We had good people. Um, we were deployed, over-deployed, so we had to pull in uh, some our regional offices and things and just mm -hmm. centralize the business. Um, but we, we needed new capital and our original investors were not willing to do it. They saw, they thought Australia was just out of control and, you know, the wild, wild west. So, yeah. so I suggested, I said, look, do you mind if I take this to private equity? And they were like, yeah, go for your, go for your life, do whatever you need to do. And so I had a, a bit of a, I, I can't say it was a beauty contest because people weren't knocking on our door, but mm -hmm. went to see three different uh, private equity concerns. And uh, fortunately, one of them uh, was um, was willing to, to follow the course that I suggested for him, which was to basically buy out the bonds, the distressed bonds. And then he would get in, he would then would run that through like a chapter 11 mm -hmm. process and convert the security, which was shares in the company. And then he'd end up owning uh, 50 some odd percent of the company. And it was a, it was a high wire act from a financial standpoint, but we, we pulled it off. And um, we just built the company from there. Um, so once we were, we had to go back after that and renegotiate with 15 banks. Um, and the last bank um, held us hostage because it was Rupert Murdoch's bank and they were trying to break up our company. Mm -hmm. But that's a, another story. But eventually uh, <laughs> yeah. we got the banks in line, mm -hmm. we got the equity in line, mm -hmm. and we built the mm -hmm. company from there. And, mm -hmm. you know, the rest is history. And, and that's how you turned the business around, but how did you turn yourself around? Because you said your ego is getting in the way, so... Yeah. Uh, and then after that crash, how did you... You weren't sleeping well. Which personal work did you do? I... Um, I worked harder and harder and harder. And... Um, but I didn't... I, my demeanor, I wouldn't say, you know, change, or I didn't, you know, sort of go around and fire half of my direct reports or, or anything like that. There was no recrimination. It was just, you know, we just had to get on with it and take it uh, day by day. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I also, we also, during that period, lost a child. 
Um, so my fifth child um, lived for a few hours when she was born. And so that added to the overarching sense of, mm-hmm. you know, being underwater during mm-hmm. that period. And um, so it was, uh, but when you're really, when you've really been hammered, mm-hmm. I mean, you don't, there's only one thing you can do, and that's put one foot in front of the other mm-hmm. every day. And um, yeah, I think people saw that I didn't panic, and people saw that, you know, there was a plan. Mm-hmm. And then people saw that I was getting on with it, and then they were, they got, got behind it, and, and people believed in the plan, and mm-hmm. some things started to fall our way, and then it, it just became, uh, you sort of turn that momentum around. I mean, business is about momentum, and you know you either have positive momentum or mm-hmm. negative momentum. Mm-hmm. You, when you have positive momentum. You treasure it like gold. I mean, mm-hmm. you, you have to do everything you can to keep it because it takes you a month or two to lose momentum. Mm-hmm. And it takes mm-hmm. you six months to 12 months to get momentum back. Mm-hmm. So it's something that you need to, to treasure. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, we got the momentum back after a year or so. And in fact, the private equity that came in um, sold out at six and a half times their investment after two and a half years. Um, which was a good reward for yeah. coming in in a very difficult uh, time. So, yeah, that was it. It was, it was, it was becoming very tactical, I guess. You know, coming up with a plan and then really executing against that plan every day mm-hmm. and then really measuring, you know, mm-hmm. how do we do, mm-hmm. what do we do yesterday and how do we do better tomorrow? Mm-hmm. Um, as the things that mm-hmm. we need to do. And it's really about mm-hmm. bringing some sh- short-term thinking. Mm-hmm. Once you have the plan, I mean, you can't not be strategic, but once you once you have the plan, you just need to get on with it mm-hmm. and really be close to it. So it comes down to structure, discipline. Yeah, st- structure, discipline, and, and, and trust mm-hmm. that everybody's going to do their job. Mm-hmm. And very quickly, if there's somebody who's... And I had a couple people who were dividing the, the camp and, you know, who, who weren't comfortable in, in, the, in, that, con- in that context, mm-hmm. who didn't get over the fact that, you know, mm-hmm. six months ago their stock was worth $10 million and now it's worth zero, and were bitter about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, we really can't handle that kind of negativity around here, so you need to, you know, rethink about the, mm-hmm. is this or rethink about whether this is mm-hmm. the right place for you. So we had a couple mm-hmm. people change out, but mm-hmm. generally speaking, um, the, the, the key people stuck with it. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, we got there mm-hmm. quicker than we probably thought we would. So something totally different, it's lockdown now, so mm-hmm. uh, we can't travel. What is, uh, you've done a lot of traveling like you told us, what is the most beautiful place you've ever visited? Ooh, in the world, jeez. Um, I mean, I'll go. I'd go to two extremes. One is the center of Australia, oh. um, the red center, Kakadu, um, the Aboriginal lands. Is that where the rock is? 
Yeah, the rocks there. We rock. Forget about the rocks. Okay. <laughs> uh, there are there are other places yeah. that are still um, very very um, untouched um, areas. You know, three times the size of Belgium with you know with a total of like five white people in them. You know, there are Aboriginal people. Yeah. There's Aboriginal lands which are protected um, and just incredible. Um, and you feel the, the sense, the feeling that you have when you are in literally in the middle of nowhere. There's nothing like it. I mean, what the sky looks like, what the what the horizon looks like, and and um, that's one of, one of the reasons I went to Australia is that to me it seemed like the last frontier. You know, that everything else was getting urbanized and complicated and, and dense and I like I was attracted to that feeling of openness and frontier and you know still developing raw um, place um, so I really like that a lot and used to travel out there and go you know barramundi fishing and and uh, just barnstorm around and you could stay at what is that fishing which kind barramundi it's a wild fish that uh, that okay. fights yeah. like crazy. Yeah. Also very delicious to eat. Mm. Um, and you can stay at, at um, people's station. They call stations, you know, mm. eat, you know, farms because they're a thousand acres. Or, you know, we're talking about a million acres, a thousand acres. Um, you know, the, the driveway takes you four hours to get down the driveway. So. Uh, <laughs> So I, that's a beautiful uh, part of the world. I think, you know, I've been to a lot of tropical places and, and places like that and, and islands and, you know, so those are all great. But I think the one place that, that had the tropical beauty as well as, as, as a real um, context, um, cultural context for me was Sri Lanka. Mm. So really loved my trip to Sri Lanka. Mm. Um, Saw some incredible and beautiful places, both on the coast, but also up in the in the, in the tea fields mm -hmm. in the highlands. So um, that's also they have an amazing Buddhist culture there, and um, yeah, lovely people. Nice. So I I would say that. I mean, it would be hard to pick of the you know hundred islands I've been to and everything else. So and you know, of course, I like skiing too. So. I like mountains, but, but yeah, those two places, two extremes, but those are probably places I'm most attracted to. When do you feel most alive? Hmm. Um, well, definitely when I'm in nature. Mm -hmm. So, you know, whether I'm you know, on my bike, whizzing through the forest of Bruscott. <laughs> yeah, nice forest there, uh, Or uh, I'm on water, or I'm hiking the mountains, or I'm skiing. Um, there's something about, you know, really being connected and grounded to nature that you just feel like, hey, am I getting more oxygen? I mean, what's going on here? I just feel, you know, like supercharged. Mm -hmm. And um, so, yeah, that, that's definitely, there's no question that that's what makes me feel alive. Mm. Mm -hmm. Say you have 10 days to live, mm -hmm. what would you do? 
Um, well, I would certainly bring my family together and bring my family close and ensure that they all, you know, knew how much I believed in them and every, anything I could do in those 10 days to, to pave the road for, for them to continue their success. That being said, they're all on their own journey and it's all going pretty good. So um, I think with raising kids, you, you know, your work's pretty much done by the time they're in their mid-teens. So uh, all you can do is sort of put some bumpers on the side of the road and let them do their thing. But um, that would be my first my first stop. Um, I also I also think um, you know it's important to uh, I don't want to overstate it, but I say define your legacy, but, which is you know you don't want to leave the earth and then without having impacted mm -hmm. it and people on it in a, in a positive and powerful way. So I think you. Maybe organize your legacy to some extent. What did I really accomplish? What did I really do while I was here? And is it meaningful? And did I help people succeed or be better people or, um, you know, economically grow, you know, and give their families, their families opportunities? And, you know, so pay it forward kind of sense. And, um, yeah, I would spend my time working that out. But obviously, I think I'd start with the people closest to me. Mm. Um, Linked to that, um, are you thinking about retirement? Um, yeah, I, had a, I don't think about it much because I never think of myself as stopping working and, you know, going mm. to Florida. <laughs> I can't think of anything worse to tell you the truth. Um, uh, I'm not very good at golf, although I like to play. But um, so, it, but it's funny you, you asked that question because I just had a conversation with somebody the other day. So uh, I have a, this coach, and he likes to he likes to walk. So walk and talk. Mm -hmm. So we just went for a. 15k walk around Ulehem uh, Skilda, mm -hmm. and uh, he asked me the same question. He said, "Like, okay, well, it sounds like you're going to work another five years or so with Telenet, and because uh, I have said that Telenet is my, at least in the media telco world, probably my swan song." And uh, he said, "Then what are you going to do?" I said, "Yeah, well, you know, I don't really think about it much, but maybe advisory." I said, "Don't like government. I don't like be on boards." I don't even like going to my own board meetings. <laughs> somebody else's. Um, so he said, um, he said, uh, well, you, because we had just been talking for the last three hours. He said, well, uh, you're not going to enjoy advising me. You know, they've basically been doing that your whole life. You know? And he said, he, I had just told him a story about what my favorite um, sort of hospitality experience ever was, was when I, when I sailed into um, Fangaroa Harbor in, in New Zealand on the catamaran, and there was this house up on the hill, beautiful white house. You could only get to it by seaplane or by boat. Oh. So we go in there, and there's, I said, to me, this is the ultimate 
hospitality experience. You go in there, obviously they have rooms, etc. It's a fishing place, and a, they have a restaurant. And we said, can we eat here? And the guy said, yeah, sure, come in. So we go at eight, and out of nowhere, there's like 50 people in there. And the food, of course, was the catch of the day, kingfish, tuna, you know, like what? amazing mm-hmm. shellfish and lobsters. And the food was amazing. And about halfway through, the, the owner of the place comes through with a bucket of grog and everybody's drinking and things are getting a little bit crazy. And then he pulls out some instruments, um, ukuleles, you know, all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Everybody's like, anybody play here? And I'm like, 10 people play something. Mm-hmm. And then the music starts breaking out and then people are up on tables by the end. I said, this is perfect for me. I said, he goes, yeah, well, why don't you do something like that? And I'm like, yeah, you know, I never thought of that, but I probably could. You know, I'd also told him about doing these uh, salons here. He said, yeah, well, maybe you could combine, you know, the, the intellectual experience with the, you know, over-the-top hospitality experience. And uh, so he got me thinking about it. So now you've asked me that question. Mm-hmm. It must mean something. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to develop that thesis, <laughs> yeah. which is I'm going to, I don't mind working and I love working, but I'm going to do something, I'm going to work at something really fun. Fun. It's going to be meaningful for yeah. other people. Cool. Um, well, the alarm just went off, so it ah. means we're already at 48 minutes. Um, I feel like we could continue for another day of questioning because uh, it was very inspiring talking to you John mm-hmm. uh, I personally enjoyed it a lot mm-hmm. and I think I can talk for the the both the two of us um, so yeah thanks a lot for sure. uh, taking the time for uh, disclosing a bit more the person behind the title bringing us into this beautiful space yeah and yeah. Um, wish you all the best with defining your cool fun project yeah. uh, no I enjoyed it too I like uh, I, I love thinking back on things and you know I'm a sort of I like storytelling so uh, it's a good opportunity weaves a few tales from, from the past <laughs> <laughs> thank you all for listening and see you next time but before you head off if you haven't heard our previous episodes yet then I strongly recommend you to check them out. You can find them on Spotify and on Apple Podcasts. Also, do check out our website, www.48hoursunplugged.com and stay up to date on all our upcoming leadership retreats and other activities. Together, let's bring more inspiring leaders into this world. Have a lovely day.